Yeah, if you guys like spray tans and uh, balding men who will make a sex tape in a couple years, uh, then WrestleMania 7 was for you. Oh, I thought you were talking about me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you got to get your hands on that Sergeant Slaughter sex tape. (laughs) (laughs) On your knees, you maggot. This one's for America. What's up, Dueling Decades? This is Wax. Peace to all you guys, and uh, thanks for having me on the show. Will it be the 90s or the 80s? Beanie Babies? Or crack babies? Will it be Nirvana or Madonna? Maybe Britney, maybe Whitney. Do you like new metal or new wave? Dave Grohl or Super Dave? I don't know. But now the battle begins. Dueling decades. Let's see who wins. Dueling decades. Broadcasting from the newspapers.com studios, it's another all new Dueling decades. The adult-only retro game show where the decades battle for supremacy because it's your history. We just fight for it. Welcome back. I am Mark James, and this week we have a magnificent March duel for you. I will be competing with March of 1971 alongside the other duelers and the decades they will be fighting for. First off, heading back to the 80s, it's the media king of the North. Please welcome... Joe Finley. Let me tell you something. I'm doing March 1982. I was not one year old yet when this month was occurring, but already we knew it was going to be legendary, and these picks are going to prove it, baby. Also joining the show, repping the 90s, it's the professor, Drew Zachman. What's up, guys? I have March 1991, and uh, I I don't think these picks are that legendary, but we'll see. (laughs) (laughs) And as always here on the show, we need somebody to adjudicate all of this awesomeness. So this week's guest judge is no stranger to fans of our show. All rise for the judge known simply as Man Crush. God, have I been gone so long that newspapers.com is our studio sponsor? <laughs> <laughs> they got the naming rights. <laughs> all right, fuck it. Uh, yeah, I'm here to, to judge some shit. Let's do this. Ladies and gentlemen, the following contest will be held under Dueling Decades rules. The judges' coin flip shall decide who picks first out of the five Dueling Decades categories. Movies, television, music, news, and hot products. A judge's ruling will determine who wins each round, allowing the victor to choose the next available category. The first three rounds are worth one point each, with rounds four and five worth two points apiece. And in the event of a tie after all five rounds, we'll go to a final wild card round. Remember, duelers, to review the show. Like, subscribe, and play along at home. It's time for more. Dueling Decades. How's this work again? <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's go right down to Man Crush for the coin toss this week, which will be between Joe Finley and the returning Drew Zachman. All right, so I had a friend of mine stop by this weekend. This must have fell out of his pocket. Uh, these are legal drugs. It's uh, some Delta-8 THC gummies from Moon Babies. <laughs> so we'll uh, we'll say this is heads and the details of the bag. The nutritional facts. Yeah, the nutritional <laughs> facts. They are gummies. So the loser has to take these at the end. Okay. All right. <laughs> who's uh, Who's calling it? Uh, Drew Zachman, why don't you call it this week? Um, all right. 
I will, I will take tails or the back. Oh, you're going with the nutritional thing. Yes. I want to make sure that I'm, you know, if I'm going to have a gummy, there's, it's low in sugar and low in cholesterol. Shit ton of riboflavin. Um, (laughs) You know what? It's it's only two grams of sugar, total sugar. You know what? That's not too bad. All right. Yeah. Well, there's only, I think there's only like two gummies. That's (laughs) so. All right. Here we go. Here we go. We have the. This guy kind of looks like the uh, the MTV Music uh, Movie Award guy. Ooh, I smell a lawsuit. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, you got it. All right, Joe Finley, you win the coin toss, and you get to select our first category. Where are we going, man? Oh, this is a tough one because I'm actually kind of in love with my all my picks, and I'm not sure. Um, I'm going to go with... Let's start with movies. Ooh, first round. Yeah. Um, Bold. So on March 12th, 1982, we got a sneak peek of a movie. It was not its opening day, but but a sneak peek in the U.S. It didn't say what city, but this movie featured James Earl Jones, Max von Sydow, Sandhal Bergman, Mako, or Mako, sorry, and the one and only Arnold Schwarzenegger in Conan the Barbarian. What blew my mind, this is actually a piece of information I didn't know about this movie. So it was written and directed by John Milius. Uh, John Milius wrote Apocalypse Now, and he went on to write and direct Red Dawn. But it was also written by Oliver Stone. That is a true fact, and that blew my absolute mind. The movie is about a man who seeks revenge against the warlord, sorcerer, and leader of a snake cult, Thulsa Doom, who killed his parents and tribe when he was a child and causing him to become enslaved. Uh, Sandhal Bergman actually won a Golden Globe uh, as Best New Star for the film, and Arnold Schwarzenegger was nominated for a Razzie for Worst Actor. It made $68.9 million worldwide, equivalent to $200.6 million today. Uh, and it's just one of those kind of classic... It's not like the Commando and the Predator for Arnie, but it's one of those ones where when you think about it and it's you're, you've got a chance to watch it, you you dive in because it's just this level of insanity that Arnold Schwarzenegger's career kind of never revisited. Uh, like at once he really got into all the action stuff. So I give you the sneak peek of Conan the Barbarian. Nice. All right, Drew Zachman, what did you bring for the movies round? Um, all right. So, you know, I, I'm guessing the target audience for your show, they're a little bit older, right? You know, the, sometimes we get aches and pains, the occasional burning or even the occasional oozing. Well, on March 22nd, 1991, we found out what that secret was to the ooze. And it had to deal with turtles living in a sewer, everybody. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Ooze. Uh, like I said, it came out March 22nd, 1991. It was a highly anticipated sequel to the 1990 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I actually remember, I'm pretty sure I saw that in the theater, and I didn't realize it was literally one year after the original came out. But now, while this film wasn't as successful as its predecessor at the box office, it still brought in a box of around $79 million on a budget of $25 million, so not, not too bad. Uh, Corey Feldman wasn't back as Donatello since he uh, pleaded no contest to a drug possession charge in December of 1990. Uh, Shocker. But we did get everyone's favorite lactate commercial model, Paige Turco. Uh, She was the new April O'Neil. And this I didn't know. I was actually 
surprised because I feel like I was super into Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and I was, you know, 10 or 11 years old. But Jim Henson and his studio worked on the animatronics for this film as they did for the first one. And this film was actually dedicated to Jim, who uh, passed away the previous May. And while the movie was amazing, and I, I do remember liking it a lot, I'm sure if I went back to watch it now, I uh, have a sneaking suspicion it doesn't hold up. But the soundtrack was amazing, thanks to Vanilla Ice's Ninja Rap. Uh, go Ninja, Go Ninja, Go. Uh, that song is actually terrible. I listened to it today when I was um, just doing some work. and <laughs> That's I was, dedication. I listened to a couple songs, and I'm like, oh, I remember some of the music. Then I listened to it, I was like, I remember this song. Whole, wow, this is fucking terrible. Like someone made the conscious decision to, to, to green light Vanilla Ice, not only like doing a song, but he was like, you know what? I like what you did. And then he put it on the soundtrack. It is terrible. Anyway, um, but the movie even has Elmo in there uh, with Kevin Clash voicing Splinter and everybody's favorite voice actor. Frank Welker was the voice of Taka and Razor. So, uh, yeah. Good movie. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Ooze. All right, gentlemen. Uh, for my movie selection, uh, released March 17th, 1971, let's all go bananas for Disney's The Barefoot Executive. This film is about an ambitious mailroom clerk at a second-rate TV network who has his eyes on the boardroom but is getting nowhere with the studio's top brass when all of a sudden he makes a career-changing discovery. His girlfriend's lovable pet chimp named Raffles can pick a hit TV show every time. Well, <laughs> the secret for his success turns into madcap monkey business when he becomes vice president of the network and jealous rivals, they want in on the act. Directed by Up the Creek director Robert Butler and starring a strapping young Kurt Russell. Alongside Harry Morgan, who famously played Colonel Potter on MASH, and the voice of underdog Mr. Wally Cox. Uh, the film also stars Heather North, who you're going to recognize as the voice of Daphne Blake from Scooby-Doo. She was the voice of Daphne from 1970 all the way to 1997. Uh, the Barefoot Executive also marks the feature film debut of Mr. John Ritter. And in one article I found in the Colorado Springs Gazette-Telegraph, March 13, 1971, it has a little note that says, Although, on the verge of a meaningful film career, 19-year-old Kurt Russell is still undecided about his future. He's torn between acting and playing professional baseball. So I give you The Barefoot Executive, March 17th, 1971. I like the Scooby-Doo connection. I had Frank Welker in mind. We had Daphne over there. Jinkies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I just saw Kurt Russell the other night. I was watching uh, Tango and Cash. I fucking love that movie. It's so good. Oh, fantastic movie. Oh, yeah. Foobar. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Man Crush, over to you. What is your verdict for the movies round? Mm, man, this one is actually tougher than one would expect. I mean, Marks, I can't even remember the name of the movie. The Barefoot something. The Barefoot Executive. <clears throat> okay, that one. But you had uh, John Ritter, Kurt Russell, Peter North. Is that what you said, Peter North? No, not Peter North. <laughs> <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't start out in that movie. <laughs> Boy, Disney knows well, how actually, to pick him. <laughs> it kind of sounds like it's like the prequel to uh, Hot to Trot. Yeah. Like just using an animal to get ahead. Cool. 
but actually it, I, I would probably watch that <clears throat> um drew came with uh secret of the ooze that's right um uh, go ninja go ninja go and you know what i have to ask you a serious question what would you rather listen to if you had to listen to one song for the an entire day Ooh. the ninja rap or coming out of their shells from the original probably coming out of their shells oh god ninja Man, rap was pretty uh, at the end it was pretty bad not gonna lie <laughs> well i maybe in both cases you'd be severely depressed at the end of that but <laughs> yeah. i don't know i think i'd have to get drunk and listen to ninja rap and just learn to like it i i've learned to like uh cold as ice i actually love that movie. cool as ice yeah. rather it's the best movie ever um, and then, uh, Joe, you came with a movie that had, uh, you say Mako, like the yeah. car painting company. They were in that. Okay. And then, um, <laughs> I, you know what? I have to go. I have to go with Joe here. Fucking Arnold knocks out a horse. <laughs> it's not the only time he's done that. It's not, but he knocks out a fucking horse. And I remember as a kid, I would laugh every time I saw that scene. And he did, yeah, he did it in the sequel too, right? Well, I, no, I was thinking, did he not punch out a horse in Central Park and Hercules goes to New York? <laughs> he just likes knocking out horses. Yes. And he also punched a, a reindeer, don't forget, in Jingle All the Way. He's got a thing for the uh, the equin. Is that what you said? <laughs> equin? I don't know. Uh, but yeah, you know what? For uh, for round one, it's close, but I'm going to have to go with, uh, with Joe on that one. All right, Joe, you pick up our first point, but more importantly, you take control of the board. What's our next category? All right. Um, well, I think I'm going to have to go with the news round. And Mark, what do I always bring when I bring, when I go to the news? That would be the sadness, Joe. Okay. Boners. <laughs> Let's keep that in mind for a few minutes and strap in. Uh, on March 5th, 1992, a beloved comedian was found dead in his hotel at the uh, at the Chateau Marmont. That comedian's name was John Belushi. Following a uh, stint of being clean in late 1981, Belushi relapsed while shooting the film Neighbors. Uh, during some during a visit to L.A., he went to his longtime manager, Bernie Berlstein, asking for money, who turned him down because he knew it was for drugs. Belushi came back later in the day when he was in a meeting, and Berlstein didn't want to embarrass him in front of this stranger, so he ended up just giving him some money and sending him on his way, where he went to buy copious amounts of cocaine and heroin and go back to his hotel. Winning. Winning, yeah. <laughs> uh, Charlie Sheen was there? You bet he was. <laughs> Uh, a lot of people actually saw him the day of his death, too. I guess Robin Williams had visited him and a few other people. Uh, Catherine Evelyn Smith admitted in an interview uh, to being the one who actually administered the speedball that killed him. Uh, she was later extradited from Canada and pleaded no contest to involuntary manslaughter. Uh, the real heartbreak about this, though, other than just dying too young and dying of drugs and all these other things, was his career, which was already doing great, was just about to hit a huge upturn. There's a lot of articles about like the roles he was supposed to get or the roles that were written with him in mind and stuff like that. So just to give you a little idea of that, uh, he was going to be Peter Venkman in Ghostbusters. That role was written specifically for him. He was oh, supposed, yeah, he was supposed wow. to play James Woods' role in Once Upon a Time in America, and that was going to be his big dramatic. Uh, like turn he was supposed to play chevy chase's role in spies like us and he was supposed to play martin short's role in three amigos when the when it was originally being 
worked out. Uh, this wow. was this was years and years before the movie actually came out, but he was actually supposed to play Ned Nederlander in that scenario. Um, he was named by Rolling Stone as the best SNL cast member of all time. That was as of 2015. I don't think anybody's topped him since then. Uh, I personally, again, it's a very subjective thing. I personally disagree, but he was a legend of his own right, and you know, one of many to uh, fall to a tragic end. John Belushi, March 5th, 1982. All right, Joe, bring him the sadness. All right, Drew Zachman, what did you bring for the news round? For those of you that know me know that I love to follow up the, the news of a tragic death with a little police brutality. So uh, <laughs> after a high-speed chase for driving while intoxicated on March 3rd, 1991, Police brutally beat Rodney King on the I-210. What makes this incident very significant is that George Holiday, who was not involved with the situation, uh, filmed the incident from his nearby balcony and sent the footage to a local news station. And then that station then played the footage, which showed an unarmed King on the ground being beaten. And obviously, you know, everybody got up in arms about it. And uh, which may be rightfully so. And they broke his leg. His face was badly cut and swollen, bruises all over his body and a burn area from a stun gun shot to his chest. And then uh, a couple weeks later, on March 15th, 1991, four officers from the LAPD were charged with excessive force of the beating. And then eventually three of the officers were acquitted. It was about a year later. Uh, Three of the officers were acquitted and the jury failed to reach a verdict on the fourth. And then. That's how the L.A. riots started, because, uh, you know, they were obviously looking for a different verdict here. So it was about a year later. I think it was the following March of 1992 when that happened. Uh, the L.A. riots uh, led to 63 people being killed and over 2000 people being injured. Uh, I feel like one of my main takeaways from and this is like a fact that I actually remembered. I read this like years ago, but Allison Chains was actually in L.A. recording dirt when these riots were going on. So I feel like that's my my tie in there. But uh, eventually a civil lawsuit in 1994, a jury found the city of Los Angeles liable and awarded King three point eight million dollars in damages. So that's what I have. March 3rd, 1991, uh, at Los Angeles police officers severely beating motorist Mr. Rodney King. And the sadness round continues. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and then we're just getting to my pick in the 70s, which, of course, is known for the sadness. But I didn't want to bring the sadness this week. You know, so I had a hard time finding some some uplifting news. So I decided to just focus on the opening of a small local business. So let's just take a trip up to Seattle on the morning of March 30th, 1971, where three friends, Jerry Baldwin, Gordon Boker, and Zev Siegel, opened up a new coffee shop at 2000 Western Avenue. Their first customer would be their friend Dan Chasen, who was on his way to the nearby Park Place Market. But after sampling some of the goods, he opted for their friend Sumatra at $1.75 a pound. He bought some tea and wrote a check for $5.36. And Starbucks was officially in business. While at the University of San Francisco, Baldwin, Boker, and Siegel all studied coffee roasting under Alfred Pete, founder of Pete's Coffee. Now, the original crew, they would eventually sell Starbucks for $3.8 million, just over $10 million today, to a Oof. former employee, Howard Schultz, 
who uh, had embarked on his own and uh, started his own coffee empire. Uh, the original founders, they wanted to focus more on Pete's Coffee. And 51 years later, Starbucks is the largest coffee house company in the world, with over 32,000 stores across the globe. But the very first Starbucks cafe was located at 2000 Western Avenue from 1971 up till 1976. Then the cafe actually later moved to 1912 Pike Place, which is its present location as the first Starbucks. So it's the opening of the first Starbucks, March 30th, 1971. I've been to that one. It's, it's literally right across the street from, from Pike's Market. It's pretty cool there. Nice. That's an awesome place. I love Seattle. So it's not the sadness, but it could be depending on how you look <laughs> at it. I, f- I feel sad for those guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Man Crush, let's kick it over to you. What is your verdict on the news round? Uh, my verdict is this is like a kick in the dick. <laughs> this is. Uh, hmm. All right, let's just start with Joe. You got uh, Belushi dead. Like, why did he need money? I know. You you would think he ha- he could probably get his hands on some money being a movie star, but seriously, that sounds like a bullshit story. For was that his agent, his manager? Ah, full of shit. Um, I'll be honest though, uh, I, I'm more of a James Belushi fan than a John Belushi fan. Take that. Everybody loves Jim. But the silver lining to this death, we got Bill Murray as Peter Venkman, and I. Th- think he would have been horrible as peter vankman in ghostbusters hard agree uh so that that's rough but i have to throw that out there uh let's go to drew drew had rodney king and uh you know what a hero that one guy was for recording it and not helping him well he was he was in his balcony so i don't know uh fucking yell like, obviously, those dudes thought that nobody was watching them. They he brought him out to like the middle of fucking nowhere. But um, but I mean, a horrible situation. So I, again, I have to try to pull the silver lining out. And we get April 26, 1992. There was a riot <laughs> on the streets. Tell me, where were you? So we got that. Uh, and then uh, then Mark brings Starbucks. Awful fucking coffee. Awful. <laughs> Suck shit through a straw. <laughs> Another win for Tim Hortons. <laughs> Fucking, this is tough. I'm going to have to go with the most powerful one, and I got to give it to Drew on this one for uh, for Rodney King. Because I think that was, you know, that was the thing that went on and on through the 90s, you know, over and over again. Kept bringing, sadly, the guy died Yeah, several years ago of a drug overdose. Is that how he died? I think it was. Maybe I'm bullshitting, but I think that he was on rehab with Dr. Drew. I mean, that's like a death sentence. Right I there. thought, yeah, I thought it was um like alcoholism or something like that. Yeah, something or like heart, he, heart mean, complications he, due to drinking and or drugs. Sad, sad. Uh, but yeah, I got to I'm not saying this is the best news story for the people that are listening. Out there. I'm not saying like this whole thing was a great situation, but I think as far as uh cultural impact. Yeah, I'm going to have to go with Rodney King because. Belushi dying. We got Bill Murray as Peter Venkman, and Starbucks is fucking terrible. Um, <laughs> but people buy it. It just fucking blows my mind. I'd rather have Dunkin' Donuts any day. Uh, but yeah, I'm going to give that one to uh, to Drew. All right, Drew, you tie up this game with Joe, but more importantly, you take control of the board hanging, heading into our final one-point round. 
What category are we going with next? Uh, you know what? I'm going to go with hot products. I feel like that's uh, that's where I'm going to go here. Um, and and this category is interesting, right? You know, like sometimes you get a product that is like sexy hot, right? Other times you get a product that's kind of like functional and like necessary, kind of boring. It's still hot, but it's, you know, it's not <laughs> sexy. But this product, gentlemen and ladies in the audience, uh, this product definitely falls under the category of sexy hot. And uh, came out on March 19th, 1991. And this is, I mean, seriously, this is a, this is a panty dropper if I ever heard one. <laughs> the Apple IIe, uh, the hardware emulation board, which was uh, which allowed for the, the newer Macs to run the older Apple II programs, which was a huge hit in the classrooms. And I'll tell you what, everybody loved it. And most schools had, by this point, like invested a lot into the Apple II computers and then uh, into the software. But Apple was looking to kind of phase them out, kind of get into the Mac. And uh, that's how they came up with the Apple IIe card. Uh, And this card, it cost $250 back then, which uh, it's like $480, $500-ish now. Uh, like now, like, which is interesting because like, I feel like people now just be like, I'll just buy a new fucking computer for 500 bucks. I don't need a card to modify things. Um, but yeah, so they, uh, had this card, which kind of like adapted things. So you can kind of like use like the older computer and the older software. Um, but also back then computers cost a lot more, uh, a couple thousand dollars back then. So this card was kind of like a quick way to keep their investments relevant. And the, the Macintosh LC, which I'm, uh, pretty sure I feel like I built my first pre-website website on that in, in middle school. Uh, helped Apple combat the, the PCs, and about half of those Mac LCs had the 2E cards in them. So these 2E cards were pretty much in, you know, well, literally half of the uh, the Mac LCs. So uh, March 19th, 1991, Apple 2E cards uh, basically helps us keep playing Oregon Trail in school. So thank you very much, Apple. <laughs> Great. Now I can die of diphtheria again. (laughs) (laughs) Dysenteria. (laughs) All right, Joe Finley, it's over to you. What do you have for the hot products round? All right. Well, this uh, round is dedicated to a man with an eating disorder who was greatly jaundiced. I want to talk about Pac-Man for a little while. (laughs) (laughs) But this isn't the Pac-Man... On the arcade, this was the Pac-Man ported for consoles. I give you on March 16th, 1982, the release of Pac-Man on the Atari 2600. Ooh. So Ooh. it it laid out differently from the, uh, from the classic arcade game. First off, that the map has been rotated. So instead of a portrait uh, style map, you had a landscape map. And the warp tunnel, instead of going from left to right, went up and down. They also gave Pac-Man an eye. That's neither here nor there. <laughs> but the thing was, the anticipation for the game was huge, because the only way you used to be able to play it would be to actually go to an arcade, lay down a quarter, and, you know, wait your turn. And it was a hot product. So uh, people being given the opportunity to play this on their home console, it was just... Like people were going out of their minds. They were stores were pre-ordering this thing left and right. Uh, it shipped over a million copies in its first month, and it sold over seven million copies in the very first year, making it the highest-grossing home video game of all time at that point. Uh, it's it ended up grossing a total of two hundred million dollars, worth five hundred forty million dollars today, and it wasn't even that good. 
That's just how badly people <laughs> wanted it. That's how hot this product was, is it sucked, but it was good enough to have in their homes because they didn't have to go and lay down the quarters to go and get it. Uh, so I give you Pac-Man on the Atari 2600, released March 16th, 1982. Fantastic. Yeah, we had that one on Atari. It was like one of the only Atari games I could get my dad to play. So we played that one all the time, and it was it was horrible. Everything was a square. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So for my hot product this week, I give you the biggest boxing match of all time. It's the fight. Joe Frazier versus Muhammad Ali in their first of their three meetings. Monday, March 8th, 1971 at Madison Square Garden. Ringside seats at MSG that night were 150 bucks or just over a grand today. But most people they were actually able to see the fight via closed-circuit pay-per-view. It was projected up on these large screens all across the country. I even saw some ads for it at a few drive-ins that were actually showing the fight. So an article I found in the Democrat and Chronicle out of Rochester, New York, March 9th, 1971, sums up the event nicely, saying, Rarely does anything so expensive live up to the advanced billing or exceed expectations. But the wildly exciting exhibition of primitive savagery that Joe Frazier and Muhammad Ali put on over 15 exalting rounds was an epic that fit the price tag. Frazier won a decision, but he punched himself out so completely that he just didn't have that little extra zing to put into one wallop that would have finished it by a knockout earlier. And Ali was still vertical at the end because he was just too proud of a man too magnificent of an athlete and too gutsy of a warrior to let himself stay down. So the fight was actually set a record with 2.5 million tickets sold in the United States alone on closed circuit venues, grossing $45 million or 315 million in 2022. Another article I found out of a central New Jersey home news describes the viewing at one of these closed circuit locations saying that nearly four hours before the fight, a lineup of almost 2000 ticket holders for this location stretched five blocks away and that the tickets were 15 bucks and had been sold out since Sunday. Everyone was actually in line early for a closed circuit viewing just to get a good seat for it. Uh, The event was eventually watched by 300 million viewers worldwide. I give you The Fight, Joe Frazier and Muhammad Ali, March 18th, 1971. And you could have seen it all on closed circuit television for just 15 bucks. All right, let's kick it down to Man Crush for his verdict on the Hut Products round. All right, so let's just start from the top. Let's go to Drew. Drew, I don't know. Steve Jobs was fired in 85 and he didn't come back for a decade. So anything in between there? But it's the Apple IIe, man. Yeah, it's not the Apple II. Um, (laughs) We'll go on to Joe. But you you could use the Apple II software. (laughs) Exactly. This shit came out like forever (laughs) before. I was was big into computers at the time. I think I had like a 286 that was like. Sounds about 12 right. Yeah, megahertz. Yep. Yeah, it was like twelve megahertz and on uh, turbo, and it was like sixteen megahertz. And there was such a battle between uh, PC and Apple at the yep. time. Where if you were a PC person, you hated Apple. Now I can't even think like that. Like I use both, but 
again, being that, uh, and I think I had that as a pick before when Jobs came back, when they announced it, he was like temporary. It was such a big deal because they basically pissed in their sock for a decade. So <laughs> I can't really, uh, I can't give that one the round. Oh. Um, Joe, you, Pac-Man 2600 or for the Atari 2600, this was my first entertainment system, like my first everything, like uh, just incredible. I had like a million games for this thing, uh, but what sucked is like by 1983, well, it didn't suck for me, but you can go to like, we go to this place called Lloyd's and games were about five bucks because nobody wanted to buy games anymore except for me and my cousin. And uh, I don't know, but I broke a shit ton of joysticks on that game. I don't know why, but when I was a kid, I would always crank that fucking joystick like I was going to go faster and I'd break it and have to get another one. But uh, seven million copies is nothing to sneeze at. That's pretty damn good. Uh, But you know what? Mark's right. I did play this on an emulator. Actually, I played a couple games on the Atari 2600 emulator a couple years ago and nothing, obviously nothing held up. But it was way worse than I remembered it when I played it, which is sad. It is nothing like like Pac-Man whatsoever. No, it's not. (laughs) And you're right. Like the circles are squares and like you can go back and play an NES game on an emulator and it's super fun. Like Tech Mobile, you're into it. There's nothing on the Atari 2600 emulator. (laughs) Like I used to love uh, Lock Lock and Barrel, Lock and Lock and Lock and Chase. That's what it was called. It was kind of like a, a, a Pac-Man ripoff kind of. I played that on the emulator and it was horrible. And I was like, why did I like this? So just remember, Pac-Man fever was the per- first pandemic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I can't uh, I can't say it was bad. You know, it was for the time. Amazing. Um, and then Mark came with Fraser versus Ali. And this is this kind of makes me want to be in that era. Yeah. Like this number one. When the fuck, what was the last time you saw a 15 round boxing match that you could go see at a drive in? Well, I didn't even get to that part yet, but yeah, that that's an extra like cool fucking thing where they actually did that over the pandemic where remember uh, they were doing like concerts at the drive in. That was cool. But the thing that sucked about it now is they were doing those concerts at the drive in and they were recorded. Yeah. Which is which is why I didn't go. I was like, that's bullshit. I'm going to go see a Metallica concert that's recorded for 50 bucks. Fuck off. But this, this was live. And this is basically the only way you can see it. And you only had three channels at home. So the fact that they had those lines for people to get in is pretty fucking amazing. Um, would you say 300 million people worldwide watch that? Yeah. That's insane. And then Fraser won. Yeah. I mean, uh I'm putting myself in 1971 and 1982. Sorry, Drew, we were out on this one. And I kind of would rather be in 71 because I think that memory of going to the drive-in, because obviously I'm not going to sit fucking ringside for $150, which is by today's inflation about a million dollars. But I would want to see that. I'd want to see Fraser Versali. I think that's pretty damn awesome. All right. All right, so I pick up the point in that round. This game is all tied up, and uh, we're heading into our first two-point round. Gentlemen, that's going to be the music round. All right, so for my music selection this week, it's actually an album I hold very near and dear to my heart. 
uh, as it has some of my very favorite recordings from this legendary artist. Released March 5th, 1971, I give you The Cry of Love, the fourth studio album from the late, great James Marshall Hendrix. Uh, so this album is actually made up of songs recorded between December 1969 and the summer of 1970 at Jimmy's Electric Lady Studios in New York. So the songs were intended to be part of an ambitious double album that was probably going to be titled First Rays of the New Rising Sun. This was all before Jimmy's death, of course, on September 18, 1970. The album was actually produced, compiled, and mixed by Hendrix's longtime engineer, the legendary Eddie Kramer, uh, along with the experienced drummer Mitch Mitchell. Uh, commercially, Cry of Love was actually a huge success. It reached number three in the U.S. and number two in the U.K., eventually selling over a million albums and being certified platinum. So let's take a look at the great track listing for this one. The album starts off with the bluesy guitar sounds of Freedom. Uh, then we get the mellow and moving track of Drifting. Uh, then it's time to uh, get the blood pumping a little bit with the driving song Easy Rider, an all-time Hendrix classic. Uh, Nightbird Flying, one of my personal favorites, is up next with its mesmerizing multiple guitar overlays and harmonies. Uh, then we move on to the bluesy guitar riffs of My Friend and Straight Ahead. Uh, and then we blast off with the seventh track, a fun frenzy titled Astro Man. Uh, then the signature spotlight track from this album, and probably the most famous one. It's a song that took Jimmy many years to write and complete about a dream he had about his mother. And that song is the unforgettable sweet sounds of Angel. So this album, it, it rounds out with the powerful In From The Storm and Belly Button Window. So I actually think this album uh, it really shows a growth and a maturity to Jimmy's music. He was starting to get more focused and technical as an artist. And I was actually really excited for the direction his music was going in at the time of his death. Uh, so this and the other releases of some of these songs, uh, like Voodoo Soup, and then eventually uh, in 97, we got First Rays of the New Rising Sun. Uh, they've always been one of my favorite Jimi Hendrix's albums. That's what I got. It's The Cry of Love. Released March 5th, 1971. All right, Joe Finley, it is over to you. What do you have for the music round? All right, well, there's a lot of uh, numbers when it comes to this album. Uh, it sold over 20 million albums in its lifetime. It was the number four uh, it was the number four metal album of all time, according to Rolling Stone. But the only number that matters is 666. The Number of the Beast, Iron Maiden's The Number of the Beast, their third album released March 22nd, 1982. It was the first album to feature Bruce Dickinson on vocals and the final album to feature drummer Clive Burr, who for the first time got a writing credit on one of the songs in the album. So uh, Steve Harris did most of the writing for all of it. Uh, Adrian Smith has credits on a couple of songs, Clive Burr on one, but the bassist did the bulk of the work. Uh, songs included Invaders, Children of the Damned, The Prisoner, uh, 22 Acacia Avenue, or Acacia Avenue, sorry, uh, The Number of the Beast, Run to the Hills, Gangland, and Hallowed Be Thy Name. Uh, just a... Run to the hills <laughs> Run for your life <laughs> Just a legendary album and the beginning of 
the you know with with dickinson at the lead of iron maiden that that is the beginning of iron maiden to me and it was also a very controversial album because it sparked a lot of protests and uh, album burnings all that usual kind of stuff of course this is usually happening in the u.s it's the constant witch hunt thing uh where the band was constantly accused of being satanists and their response was simply listen to the lyrics you probably understand that we are not satanists but yes i do understand the name of our album is number of the beast and people who don't go further than that probably draw a conclusion but they took it in stride and uh, went forward the album charted everywhere all across the world it topped out at 33 on the billboard top 200 in u.s um the controversy may have uh tamped that number down a little bit on them but uh you know, looking back on it today, like I said, Rolling Stone named it the number four metal album of all time. I still don't even know who the three above it are, but, you know, I think arguments could be made that those numbers could probably be switched around. So that's what I give you. March 22nd, 1982, Iron Man. Or Iron Man, Jesus. Iron Maiden and the number of the beast. <laughs> I would say probably Puppets is uh, would be one of the top three if I had I, to guess. I would assume. Really? You go Puppets <clears throat> first? See, I like Ride the Lightning over Puppets. So my, I mean, my favorite's Justice, but I feel like going by like what some of these uh, critics would say, I feel like from a critical standpoint, they would probably go Puppets. Yeah. I, I love the Black album too, but that's my personal. But as far as Maiden albums go though, uh, that, <clears throat> that, that, album's, that one's phenomenal. That album's absolute monster. Oh, Hallowed yeah. Be Thy Name is probably my favorite Maiden track. I mean- his vocals on that are one of the most impressive uh, hard rock slash metal vocal tracks I've ever heard. So good pick. All right, Drew Zachman, it is over to you. What is your pick for the music round? Yeah. So I, I don't have an album, but I have a kind of a big deal. Actually, I kind of have two big deals with one family. So uh, music history was made twice in the same month. Uh, by two people, their brother and sister. So uh, first, on March 11th, on 311 Day, back in 1991, Janet Jackson uh, signed the largest recording contract in history worth $40 million over the course of three albums. And then two weeks later, uh, her big brother, uh, he outdid her a little bit. Uh, Michael signed a six-album deal with Sony, worth 65 million dollars so janet was like you know in her peak right she's on the heels of uh rhythm nation 1814 that came out in 1989 i mean that album was huge i love it my kids listen to it they love janet jackson now they wear metal hats yeah yeah like the baseball hat like the little metal like yeah absolutely you have to of course okay um and and then we, we go dancing in like a random abandoned warehouse yeah Everybody does that with with Antonio Sabato Jr. Well, that was a, that was a different video. That was, uh, was that I, I don't. I'm not a. I'm not a huge fan. What? I'm a huge fan of Antonio Sabato Jr. Uh, he has. I mean, you talk <laughs> about range, man. That guy had it. Um, <laughs> fucking actor extraordinaire. <laughs> um, yeah. So so after the deals, right? Michael would release Dangerous in 1991, and then Janet would release her album Janet in 1992 as their first albums after these uh, record deals, making them the highest paid musicians. Uh, And then Janet, her album, it sold over 10 million copies. And then she would eventually go on to sign an $80 million deal, or I guess they redid their deal with Virgin in 1996. So 
kind of a big deal. I mean, they were, you know, you have one of them signing that $40 million deal uh, March 11th, 1991. And then Michael, two weeks later, signed a $65 million deal with Sony uh, for six albums. Now, I don't think he released six albums with them, but still pretty, uh, pretty awesome. So what a, what a one upper he was. I know. Right. Um, but yeah, March, 1991, uh, the Jackson show that anyone can be rich, even if you have a shitty dad. So there you go. I'm still holding out hope. (laughs) (laughs) All right, man crush over to you. What is your verdict on the music round? All right. Well, there's only one of these picks that I'm going to see in Newark in October. Joe Finley wins the music round because dude that everything that iron man does is fucking amazing yeah. um i it is pretty remarkable the the jackson's thing that they both signed that in the same month uh and mark that's a good al- album too but yeah come on i can point out i found out what the other uh top metal albums were so number three was Ooh, judas, let's hear it number three was judas priest british steel Number two what? was Metallica, Master of Puppets. Ah. Num- number one was Black Sabbath, Paranoid. Uh, was this from uh, Rolling Stone? Yeah, this is Rolling Stone. Yeah, that sounds like a Rolling no, Stone. No Jeffro Tull in there. <laughs> <laughs> wait, 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 wait. So wait, what? So then, if those were top four, then when? Where was uh, Lincoln Park? Three dollar bill, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> was that? Then I guess that's probably five, right? <laughs> no, this is Rolling Stone. Fair. I mean, any 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 ranking should have Limp Bizkit. Actually, who's Give us the top 10. I, I'm curious. Okay, top 10. Pantera, Vulgar Display of Power was number yes. 10. With the fist uh, in the face on the album cover. Yeah, yeah, it has to be there. Wait, that was 10? That was 10. Number 9, okay. Ozzy Osbourne, Blizzard of Oz. That's a great album. 8, Megadeth, Peace Sells, But Who's Buying? But who's Buying, yep. Okay. Number 7, Motorhead, No Remorse. Okay. Number 6, Slayer, Rain and Blood. <laughs> number 5, Black Sabbath, Black Sabbath. Rick Rubin's a dick. And then <laughs> and then uh Iron Maiden number of the Beast and Judas Priest and Metallica and Black Sabbath. I can't believe Judas Priest was three. Yeah, that surprised me too. Right when I saw that, I'm like, okay, so Iron like Iron Maiden skips one automatically. I have nothing against Judas Priest. I just don't think that they'd be that high. No. Especially eh, maybe because it's Rolling Stone. I always prefer yeah, I gotta, the I gotta, Far Beyond I Driven. Know. From Pantera. That was really? Always, that, yeah, that was always my favorite. Maybe it's a little it, that's, nostalgia because that was my first Pantera album that I really got into. Yeah, was then that I, Then I went back to- uh, 95? Uh, that was 94. Got shattered. That's got a lot of good songs on it. And then just, just for know. people who care, number 69 was Soundgarden's Louder Than Love. Ah. <laughs> just because I wanted to see who was 69. <laughs> Yes. Wait, was 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 dirt on there from Alice in Chains? I'm not going through this entire top. Oh, list. <laughs> come on! All right. I got I got some homework then. I gotta I gotta find. I did out. I did top ten and then I did and then I did the mature thing and looked for sixty nine and now I'm done. <laughs> well, let's 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 talk about the top seventeen. That's <laughs> <It's> okay. <laughs> All right, Joe Finley. Well, you jump out to a lead heading into our final round which is going to be the television round. You have the honor to either go first or defer. <clears throat> I'm going to defer and I'm going to make Drew start. And I don't know why, but we're going to, that's okay. what's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> he's probably, he's probably mad that I made him, that I asked him to uh, look up, look up more of those bands. Once you asked for 17, I was done. <laughs> 
uh, all right. So TV, right? So let's uh, let's get into it here. Um, who doesn't love watching uh, a bunch of half naked men in tights running around all greased up? I know I do. Uh, well, on March 24th, 1991, you got your wish as WrestleMania 7 took place in Los Angeles, California. It's actually my second Los Angeles one between this and Rodney King. Um, 14 matches that were showcasing some quality athletes took place that day. I also had Regis Philbin helping with commentary on the main event, which featured Hulk Hogan versus Sergeant Slaughter. Uh, and then Alex Trebek also apparently had... Uh, no Jeopardy that day, so he served as the ring announcer. Uh, some of the matches that took place that day, the Nasty Boys defeated the Hart Foundation for the, well, then WWF Tag Team Championship. The Undertaker, making his WrestleMania debut, defeated Jimmy Snuka, and he would win, like, what, every WrestleMania event he was in or something like that. Um, the Ultimate Warrior defeated Randy Macho Man Savage. The Big Boss Man Speaking of police, uh, defeated Mr. Perfect for the Intercontinental Championship. And then Hulk Hogan in a 20-minute marathon match uh, defeated Sergeant Slaughter. So, yeah, if you guys like spray tans and uh, balding men who will make a sex tape in a couple years, uh, then WrestleMania 7 was for you. Oh, I thought you were talking about me. (laughs) (laughs) Hulk Hogan, just shave your head. Come on. Yeah, you got to get your hands on that Sergeant Slaughter sex tape. (laughs) (laughs) On your knees, you maggot. This one's for America. I heard he was was banging an Iranian. (laughs) (laughs) Such a turncoat. (laughs) Doggy. All right, guys. Uh, So for my television pick this week, let's all take a dip in the cement pond. As we go for the series finale of the Beverly Hillbillies, airing March 23rd, 1971 at 7.30 on CBS. Uh, The weekly television listing in newspapers all across the country for this one read, It's the last new Beverly Hillbillies of all time, and you can rejoice or feel sorrow depending on your reaction to this show, which is often funnier than it was credited in being. Anyway, Jethro comes home. Mike Miner reveals that he's not really named Audubon Getty Crockett. And at the show's end, Ellie May, played by Donna Douglas, is still in need of a husband. Uh, CBS canceled the show as part of their new urban rebranding. They uh, got away from shows like the Beverly Hillbillies, Petticoat Junction, Green Acres, and Mayberry RFD. All shows that had earned them the moniker of the country broadcasting system. So the Beverly Hillbillies began airing September 26th of 1962. It lasted for 274 episodes over nine seasons. It was nominated for seven Emmy Awards. And just three weeks from its debut, the series rose to number one, the quickest in television history. This is actually a feat that is unmatched to this day. Uh, And actually because CBS neglected to renew their copyrights, The first 55 episodes of the show are in the public domain. Uh, So when the show premiered in 1962, Jed Clampett's fortune was given at $25 million. Now adjusted for inflation, that's about $235 million in 2022 dollars. And by the end of the show, the fortune had climbed to $100 million or $700 million in today's dollars. So let's all wave goodbye to the Clampets in the final Beverly Hillbillies, airing March 23rd, 
1971. All right, Joe, it is all the way back to you. What is your pick for the television round? All right, well, I go back to a show that I very much enjoyed, not at the time because I was a baby, but uh, it was a very short run. It was canceled fast, and it became a cult hit and actually led to something much, much bigger. So uh, created by David and Jerry Zucker and Jim Abrams, uh, who worked together in Kentucky Fried Movie and Airplane, uh, they teamed up with Leslie Nielsen again as they launched Police Squad. So Leslie Nielsen stars as Frank Drebin uh, in a spoof of police procedurals. Only lasted six episodes before it was canceled, but it developed such a cult following that it ended up inspiring them to get everybody back together and create the Naked Gun series, which made O.J. Simpson a movie star. And that's all that's really important here. <laughs> he didn't get Terminator, so he got <laughs> Naked Gun. But... Despite being only on air for six episodes, it got nominated for two Emmys. It got nominated for Best Actor for Leslie Nielsen and for Best Writing for the Zuckers and uh, Abrahams. But this show packed with guest stars, like era-specific guest stars. Don't get me wrong. Like, I'm not like it's not always the cream of the crop. But when you name them off, you're like, oh, yeah, for 82, of course, these are the people who are showing up. Uh, so. People included in this were Lauren Green, Robert Goulet, Tommy Lasorda, William Shatner, Dr. Joyce Brothers, Florence Henderson, and Dick Clark. There were a few others in there, but those were kind of like the namely ones. But the one I didn't name is the one whose role he shot, but they didn't air because he died, and I've already talked about him. John Belushi shot a role for one of the episodes, but he died before that episode came out. So they cut, they cut his role from the episode, and uh, I'm not oh. sure exactly which one it was. But yeah, he had a, he there was a he had a role in the can for this show. Um, this is the first TV show I ever owned on a physical media. I had a VHS copy that was all six episodes of this, and I was such a huge fan of Naked Gun growing up and stuff like that. And so this was just one of those shows, and it is all the magic. If you if you've only ever seen the Naked Gun and didn't see Police Squad, it's all the same magic. It's there and it's so much fun. Uh I highly recommend you trying to hunt that one down and if not for the nostalgia of seeing Tommy Lasorda acting, then what <laughs> then what else? So I give you that March 4th, 1982, the debut of Police Squad. All right, let's throw it down to Man Crush for his final verdict on this game. Oh man, this one's actually this is kind of easy. There, <laughs> this is uh, it's kind of a slam dunk. Uh, let's start with Drew. Uh, Drew, you came with uh, WrestleMania 1991. Uh, I remember that 21 minute gas out fest between uh, Hogan and Slaughter. It's fucking awful. And I remember, like, I I was kind of Mark. I don't know if you were kind of the same boat. I, well, you were more of a WCW guy, but. I don't know. Like at that time, I was kind of fading. I was in eighth grade. I was like, eh, yeah. it's kind of shitty now. No, that's exactly where I stopped watching WWF was when Hogan came back and did the whole thing with Slaughter and the, the pro America bullshit. Yeah. I was, uh, was garbage. Yeah. And then Macho Man fucking lost. You had the fucking nasty boys beat the heart <laughs> foundation. You just lose the round just for that. Still a better match than Hogan. <laughs> Boss man beating Mr. Perfect. What the hell? It's my favorite match on the card. But still. That was probably the best one on there. Um, <laughs> Mark, you said something about a semen pond to begin this one off. Did you see that? Yeah, no, no, no. A, a, a cement pond. 
I see my, my my hearing is going. It's a Marine Corps fucking my ears. Um, I've never watched an episode of this show in my life. Um, but I don't think I'd ever want to either. What my question was: What was it replaced by? Uh, they brought in uh, Mary Tyler Moore and a bunch of other shows at the time that oh, were okay. all. Okay, so everything was better. <laughs> yes. Yeah, everything was better. Well, I got scared okay. when you said urban. I was like, oh, if you say like it was the Jeffersons and that and that was their urban, I'm going to be like, no, we're, we're not going to talk anymore. No, they wanted more like, you know, middle class working people, not, you know, country bumpkin programs. Yeah. So. That was a lot of eggs in that basket, though, when you really think about it all at once. I thought that those were spread out over like a decade. Yeah, no, they were all on TV at the same time. Wow. It, was, it was pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> and I just wanted to correct you for something that you got wrong. You said $25 million was like 200, whatever you said. It's actually $253 trillion in 2022. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, a gallon. <laughs> we laugh but we're all crying on the inside uh, um so 82 police squad dude this is fucking epic shit but one of the things you said and i don't know if this is true or not because i never knew this fact you said oj was gonna be the terminator i maybe i might have heard that before yeah he was okay like, he, he wasn't like a definite kind of thing, but he was somebody they were looking. He was at. like a runner up. Or yeah, something. yeah. It's not like it was either him or or Arnold, but he was somebody who they looked at. Okay, so can you imagine a universe where you had OJ Simpson and Billy Idol, possibly in the same fucking <laughs> franchise? <laughs> you almost lose the round for that. It's that bad. Um, I I don't know what I wrote here. I wrote. Oh, I know why I wrote this. I said not good for TV. Um, that was the problem with police squad. It was not good for television because you had to fucking pay attention. And in 1982, again, it's not the seventies where you only had three channels. You had like five, but like, <laughs> you, like you were most likely reading a newspaper, you know, bullshitting with somebody in the room or whatever. People actually did things. Then you didn't have cell phones in your hand. You weren't on the internet. You were actually conversing with somebody. And for this show, even the movies, you have to pay attention to every little detail to catch the jokes. And that's why it didn't work on television. But it is funny. If you have the time, you have the six episodes and you sit down and you watch them and you do nothing. Put your cell phone away, smash it or something, kick all the kids out of the house. You have to pay attention because it is funny as shit. But you really have to pay attention to the little jokes that these guys did because the Zuckers are fucking awesome. Um but this is super easy because, Mark, what's in the Man Crush 3? Airplane. Airplane. And so I, I got to go, police squad. All right, Joe, you know what that means. You walk away from this one with a landslide victory. Congratulations, man. Thank you. It doesn't not feel good. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> well done, sir. Cheers. Knocking out horses. <laughs> That was where, semen ponds. When, when you start with that momentum with of a guy who just punches horses <laughs> in the face constantly, there's no, there's no like no slowing down. There were a lot of rounds that were closer than uh, <laughs> than you guys would think, but yeah. you know, I I think I. That's a great thing about this show, though, because I'm sure everybody that, that listens is like, "You're fucking crazy." Yeah. 
Like, semen pond is the best. <laughs> but, you know, like, everyone, uh, you know, you do your own thing. And that's that's how I yeah. had it. Tune into the new uh, dating show, Semen Pond, on Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> it's called The Bachelor. Yeah. <laughs> I think I got hepatitis again. <laughs> that was Pam and Tommy, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, congratulations again to Mr. Joe Finley for pulling out the win on this one. Joe, why don't you tell everybody uh, what you got coming up on your show and on your awesome YouTube channel? Uh, we got a lot coming up. Uh, we actually had to take a week off because I was in uh, COVID isolation, not for me, but from a coworker who had uh, contracted it. And... Uh, so yeah, I have like we just weren't able to get together to shoot anything, but we're getting together uh, this week, and we've got some pretty uh, good things coming uh, around the bend. Actually, tomorrow, as we record this, so when this comes out, it'll already be out. Is our Ghostbusters episode, so you can check that out. And then on uh, my YouTube channel, Miscast Joe, you can go check me out there, and I'm doing all sorts of uh, crazy nonsense with technology and all that. So I just. Uh, dropped a tutorial on how to make like a crazy alert that all appears behind you and that stuff i'm really proud of that video and uh, you can find me there's another guy named sam woodhall you can find me in one of his videos because he looked at my video and stuff like that so a lot of, a lot of me just floating around youtube right now it's going great all right, and once again, I'd like to thank Mr. Drew Zachman for coming back on the show. Always a pleasure having you here to compete with us. Uh, why don't you tell everybody what you got cooking? Um, yeah, so I, uh, I'm moderately addicted to a game called Retro Bowl. Uh, if you guys don't know what it is, it's, um, it's a mobile app. It's also on the Nintendo Switch now as well. But it's, it's like Tech Mobile for your phone. Yeah, see, Joe's, Joe's got it right there. I'm... Uh, <laughs> insanely good at it like i feel like it's like one of those like rare things where i'm actually good at this uh so uh, a buddy of uh, a buddy and i we started a podcast where i kind of go over tips and stuff so uh it's called the retro bowl network um so yeah check it out it's all everywhere you get a podcast from so retro bowl network check it out maybe you'll uh learn something new from that but uh it's just yeah it's that's like the like, i don't really have a lot of free time anymore um because i'm going back to school so like this is like playing retro bowl is like the I don't really watch TV much anymore. So like retro bowl is like one of those things where I could play for like a couple of minutes, put it down, do some work and just have some fun and not have to go crazy with everything. So it's a good game. Check it out. Can you be Jay Schrader and run backwards for 60 yards and throw a 99 yard <laughs> touchdown to Tim Brown? Uh, no. Oh, then I don't want to play. I wouldn't want to be Jay Schrader anyway. Sorry. <laughs> you don't like that blonde hair? Come on. <laughs> I mean, I would, I would be, I would, I wouldn't mind being Bo from the Raiders or Marcus Allen or Howie Long, the cool flat top, but not Jay Schrader. <laughs> Doesn't work without Jay Schrader. <laughs> well, on that note, duelers, if you've missed an episode of our show, don't worry. You can always go back to duelingdecades.com where you can listen to the show. You can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, everywhere podcasts are available. And then while you're on those interwebs, surf on over to facebook.com forward slash dueling decades, where you can uh, join our private group and share some of your very own retro memories. Just go to www.duelingdecades.com because fuck social media. <laughs> just going to throw that out there. You want me to retake that? No, you don't have to. Just leave that there. All right. <laughs> <laughs>
All right, Doolers. Well, on that note, we will bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Have a grateful week, everyone. Podcast New York. Be heard.